If you uh, have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans as we continue our series through the book of Romans. We come this morning to the third chapter, Romans chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. And before we read, I invite you to bow with me as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on his word. Let's pray together. Lord God, we have already tasted your grace and your mercy and the forgiveness of our sins. We praise you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us through your word, and I pray now that as we turn our attention to it, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that the same Spirit that gave breath to these words would now reign in our hearts and in our minds and give life to them, that your word may be in us. Lord, that it may produce fruit of change that would be for our good and for your glory. We offer ourselves to you for this time, and we pray. Amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word, Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. So Paul uh, picks up here after having, in chapter 2, talked about the outwardness of Jewishness doesn't mean that much in terms of salvation and securing a right relationship with God. It goes on to say then in chapter 3, verse 1, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. And by the way, uh, he says, first of all, here, and then he doesn't really say anything else until we get to chat. And then he goes on to say more, um, more of advantages and more uh, value in, in being a Jew. So in verse 3, when faithful, will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge? Someone might argue if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? As some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is just. You may be seated. C.S. Lewis once said, the ancient man approached God. The accused person approaches his judge on the bench. But for the modern man, he says, the roles are reversed. We have put man on the bench and is in the dock. In our, our text this morning, uh, Paul puts himself in the shoes of his Jewish listeners who are putting God in the dock. They have deep objections to God based on Paul's teaching. And these objections are raised in response to what Paul has said in Romans chapter 2. If you don't, uh, Paul made, uh, made the, uh, the point pretty forcefully in chapter 2 that ethnic Jews won't be saved merely by virtue of their ethnicity. 
He said, word expression of Jewishness that secures your relationship with God. In fact, he said, a person is a Jew, a true Jew who is one inwardly. And so a true child of God is a matter of the heart, not these outward expressions or rituals. And so even Gentiles can be true Jews if their hearts are right with God within Christ. But as you might imagine, this teaching didn't really sit very well with many of Paul's Jewish listeners. It shook the very foundations of their religion. And it brought to the surface two specific objections about the God they thought they knew. Two objections concerning, in fact, the very nature of who God is. And as we will see, uh, these two objections are objections that we as professing Christians still wrestle with at times as well. So the first objection is that God is unfaithful. For Paul's Jewish readers, the line of thinking goes like this. If what you say is true, Jewish ethnicity doesn't really matter in giving you a right relationship with God, then is there any advantage or value at all in being a Jew? And Paul says in the first couple of verses of chapter 3 that there is real value and advantage in being a Jew. And he will elaborate, like I mentioned, he will elaborate on those advantages in greater detail in chapter 9. But here in chapter 3, he points the chief advantage. And that is that the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. It was to the Jews that God revealed his will and his law on Mount Sinai. It was to the Jews that God spoke uh, his words and oracles through the prophets. And it was to the Jews that God gave his covenant promises as recorded throughout the Old Testament. But here's the problem. A significant part of God's covenant through his word was that the Jews would be God's treasured possession. That they were those upon whom God has set, had set his affection. They were the people of God, and God would never leave them or forsake them. But now Paul has said that the Jews, too, are under God's judgment. That their sin and their unfaithfulness makes them equally deserving of God's wrath as the Gentiles. And that their Jewishness has no power to save them from God's judgment in the end. So the objection is this, if God will end up judging the Jews for their sin and their unfaithfulness, just like the Gentiles, then isn't God himself unfaithful to his covenant promise? As Paul puts it in verse 3, what if some of the Jews were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness God's faithfulness? In other words, does, doesn't, does, does God's judgment against the Jews mean that he has abandoned his promises to them people? Has he forsaken his end of the covenant? Is he exposed as a liar because he won't carry through what he had promised? And isn't God in the end unfaithful? Well, Paul gives his answer to this objection in verse 4, where he says, Not at all. Let, let God be true and every human being a liar. In other words, don't ever let such a paltry and loathsome thought about God even enter your mind. God is faithful to the core. It is intrinsic to his very nature, the essence of his being. You could take God, Paul says, you could take, uh, take every human being who has ever lived and put each one in a match against God, and they would all fall as at the feet of his faithfulness. And so God's punishment against sin, and more specifically, his punishment against the sin and the unfaithful Jews, does not in any way nullify his faithfulness. In fact, it is just the opposite. His punishment against sin demonstrates to his righteous character. 
This is the point Paul makes in quoting Scripture in verse 4. Paul says, As it is written, so that you may be proved, speak, and prevail when you judge. That quote comes from Psalm 51, verse 4, which uh, was written by King David, if you remember uh, the evil that he committed against uh, Uriah and Sheba. And if you remember the story, God had punished him for his sin. And David acknowledged in this psalm that God was right in his judgment. He said in Psalm 51, verse 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David acknowledged that God was faithful in his, uh, faithful to his righteousness in punishing his sin. And so too, Paul says God is faithful to his righteous character in judging the Jews for their unfaithfulness and their un And by the way, just a little side note here, when, when Paul talks about the unfaithfulness of the Jews, that there's a little bit of ambiguity surrounding that term. It could either as unfaithfulness or as unbelief. And I believe Paul has both of those ideas in mind, that they were unfaithful to their covenant obligations. They were unbelieving in the sense that they, they, they refused, or refused to accept Christ as God's promised Messiah. And so both of those come together in that term unfaithful, and, and it is for their unfaithfulness that God is judging them. And Paul will go on to show later that God's punishment of the Jews is not at all an abandoning of his covenant promises to them. In fact, his punishment of the Jews and, and his corresponding mercantiles is in fact a way of provoking the Jews to jealousy so that many of them will be drawn back into his covenant embrace. And so Paul uh, will we'll, we'll deal with this quite thoroughly, 9 through 11. And in chapter 11, uh, Paul raises this question. He says, did God reject his people? And his answer is, by no means. And you say that just as in the days of Elijah, a, a remnant of faithful Jews has been preserved even today. And he says that though the Jews are like branches that have been cut off of the, if they do not persist in their unbelief, Paul says, they will be grafted back in again. And so in the end, as Paul says in Romans 11, verse 26, all will be saved. And we will unpack what that means when we get to that portion of Paul's letter uh, in Romans 11. But this is all part of God's redemption plan. His, his judgment does not nullify his faithfulness at all. It is instead a means of faithfully carrying out and carrying his redemption story. And so let me ask you this morning, friends, do you ever question the faithfulness of God? Does it ever seem to you that, that God is, is not true to his word? Well, Paul assures here that the problem is, is not with God, but, but with us. We might think of it this way. Suppose a traveler decides to go on a long journey uh, throughout the United States. And so he buys a, a car, and he, he does some research, and he buys a car that has a really good reputation as being a really sound, reliable car. He doesn't put any oil into the car. And somewhere deep in his journey, after several thousand miles of travel, the car breaks down. The question is, can the traveler reasonably claim that the, that the car is defective because it has broken down? Well, of course not. That the traveler's own negligence doesn't know the reliability of the car or the company that designed it and made it. 
And so to our own unfaithfulness does not nullify this of God. It was in fact the faithfulness of God that gave Jeremiah hope in the midst of his own anguish. Uh, he too was on the verge of in the dock as he cried out to God in, in bitterness and complaint. God had punished his people for their unfaithfulness and he gave them over to the ruthless Babylonians and it was a pill for Jeremiah to swallow. But even in the midst of it, he could not shake his conviction that God was and is faithful. And so he said, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. This is in the middle of his lamentations, his crying out to God, his in his sorrow. And he says, and yet I cannot lose hope because of this. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. Every morning, great is your faithfulness. Though it doesn't always appear to be so, God's faithful. As Paul said to Timothy, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And we see that uh, so throughout the, uh, the book of Hosea, don't we? How... Uh, God pictured Israel as an adulterous, unfaithful bride, and yet God is persistently faithful, drawn back to him. God is, and this is what faithfulness really means, God is true to his word and unfailing and caring of his promises. Even when we go through seasons of dryness and doubt, and even when it seems that God is, is silent or absent, experience in life is one like Jeremiah's of affliction and wandering and bitterness and gall. Even when we are wrestling with deep questions about God's power and his provision, God is through it unwaveringly and unceasingly and unfailingly faithful. Which brings us then to our second the second objection of our text, and that is that God is unjust. Paul has argued that Gentiles alike are unrighteous and deserving of God's righteous judgment, and he has said that the good news of the gospel is that God credits the perfect righteousness of to those who believe. But some have then drawn from this message the idea that God is then wrong or unjust for judging anyone. If our only ends up putting on display the beauty and the glory of God's righteousness, then is he not unjust for judging us? How can he judge us for something that makes him the end? And as Paul puts it, but if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say that God is unjust in bringing his us? Isn't it unfair for God to get angry with our sin if it only results in, in a greater display of his righteousness and glory? There's a rather blunt answer to this line of thinking in verse 6. He says, certainly not. If that were so, then how could God judge the world? You see, for Paul, this line of thinking is so absurd that it is barely worthy of response. God is the almighty judge of the universe. It is in his very to do what is right. The only thing that would be unjust of him would be to excuse sin or to let sin go unpunished. 
Now, Paul then goes on to show how dangerous this objection is. If left unchecked, it leads to a hellish dismissal of our, of, of our own sin and to do evil. He says in verse 7, If my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Again, you know, if, if my sinfulness only brings about more good for God, then, then why am I not off the hook? And then again in verse 8, he says, Why not say, as some slanderously claim that the gospel says, Let us do evil that good may result. You see, when we begin to put God on trial for his judgment against sin, we soon find ourselves excusing our sin. It slides into our way of thinking so subtly, easily, and it, it happens over time. We, we begin to take God's grace for granted. We, we presume upon his forgiveness. We, we downplay the severity of our own sin, settle into a state of complacency, and we stop striving for holiness. And the next thing you know, we're sitting in church Sunday after Sunday, singing songs of grace and mercy and forgiveness without even knowing that we have grown comfortable with our own sin. And that we have stopped pursuing what is holy. And then we just go on sinning under the banner of forgiveness without any real sorrow or repentance. Robert Mounts said, Where Christianity leads, then I for one want nothing to do with it. Because he says it is a mockery. It is an offense to us. We need to reclaim a robust vision of God as almighty judge. Almighty judge, he always, always without fail, always does what is right. He is perfectly just. He doesn't ends to justify the means. He, he cannot excuse human sin. Moses said of him, he is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. The psalmist said, God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day and of his justice. Even King Nebuchadnezzar said of the God who humbled him, I praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right, his ways are just. And John, in his vision of God's judgment at the last day, heard an angel say, You are just in these judgments, O holy, who are and who were. And the altar responded, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Like many of Paul's day, we may cry out in complaint against the judgment of God. We may feel, as many of them did, that his judgment is not fair. Wonder why he chooses to save some from his wrath and not others. And it's only natural for us as finite humans to wrestle with these deep things of God, but it warns us that we must not allow our, our wrestling with these things to turn into accusing. We must remember that where our place is and where God's place is, we must remember God's place is always on the bench and never in the dock. It is not our place to question, but it is our place only to humbly honor him as judge and to trust that all of his ways are just, as almighty consistently and perfectly and unfailingly just. So Paul, in, in this text, in these verses, refutes these objections is unfaithful and that God is unjust. 
But if you're still not convinced, there is an even stronger refutation of these objections. And that is that these objections are silenced at the cross. It was at the cross that God proved himself faithful to his covenant promises to secure for himself a people belonging to him. It was only through the cross that he was able to make sinners his treasured possession, including them in his covenant embrace, not by excusing their unfaithfulness, but by forgiving it through the perfect sacrifice of Christ. As Paul said to Titus, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. It was through the cross that God was faithful to his promise to secure his covenant people. As Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And it was at the cross that God exercised his just judgment against human sin. As a just judge, the evil of sin could not go unpunished. And so in perfect justice, he punished human sin at the cross. But in perfect grace, the punishment fell upon instead of us. As the prophet Isaiah said, he was pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquity. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. The objections that God is unfaithful and that God is unjust are silenced definitively and profoundly at the cross. The pioneers discovered that one of the best ways to fight the the devastating wildfires that often ravaged the prairies was to, was to fight the fire with fire. And so when they saw smoke on the horizon and flames coming their way, they would do a controlled burn on a wide strip surrounding their property. And then when the wildfire approached, it, it, it couldn't touch them. It would come to the part that was already burned and it, it wouldn't go any farther because there was nothing left. And as... The burned ground provided refuge for the pioneers. So the cross provides for us. For the cross is the place where the, the fire of God's judgment against sin has already burned. At the cross, all of our objections are silenced. For at the cross, we stand untouched by the flames. And we see, as we look to the cross, without that God is faithful and God is just. Let's bow together. Lord, we come before your throne in a time of silent prayer and response as we prepare our hearts for communion this morning. Oh Lord, I pray that you would show us more deeply and more clearly your faithfulness, justice, as we see them displayed so beautifully at the cross. And I pray that you would forgive us, O Lord, for the ways that we have at times been prone to put you in the dock, to put you on trial, to challenge in your faithfulness and your justice. So Lord, hear our silent prayers this morning.
we know, as the Apostle Peter says, that it was not with perishable things like silver or gold that we were redeemed to way of life handed down to us, but it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And it was through the precious blood of Christ that we have been made to be your people. It was through the precious blood of Christ that we are, as on to say, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, God's treasured and special possession, that we may declare that him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once we were not a people, but now, through the perfect sacrifice of Christ, we are of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now... We have received mercy. The Lord, we praise you this morning for your unwavering and ceasing faithfulness and for your perfect justice as almighty judge. Oh Lord, may we bow before you in humble submission to your authority as the universe. And may we bow before you in humble adoration for your rich mercy which has made us your covenant people through the precious blood of Christ, whose name we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul said that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread.